Colossians chapter 3. If you're on an electronic device, we forgive you. <laughs> Find Colossians 3. We're going to be looking at verses 22 and moving into chapter 4, verse 6. We're looking at a message called Words and Deeds. Words and Deeds. Let's pray one more time. Father, as we uh, now open your word, thank you that your word is alive. Thank you that it is powerful. Thank you that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that it goes deep. Last week when we were together, we were told by Paul, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it be extravagant. Let it be something that we both ponder deeply and it penetrates deeply into us and it comes out in our lives lord your word is alive and i believe it's one of the things that shapes and molds us more into the image of christ and shows who we are in this world whether we're on a soccer field in a church in a business office at home wherever it is lord you want your people to be reflecting you in the world you didn't take the apostles out of the world you said protect them from the evil one but you said to go into all the nations and preach the gospel, to go into all the world and make disciples. And the only way we can do that, Lord, is through the church, through your people. And you said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Each of us, Lord, that are here, we have a special mission field, a special place to which you have called us. It's unique to us, and we want to exploit it for your kingdom, for your glory, for your honor. And so we pray right now, Lord, that wherever we are in this walk with Jesus Christ, that you would sharpen our walk and make us more like you. We pray in Jesus' holy name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Words indeed. So I think it should be obvious, but I'll say it just for the sake of the message. And it's this, what you say and do defines you. That should be obvious, right? What we say and do ends up defining us. Here's the verse that we looked at in a previous message. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, take a look with me, Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, I know that, you know, whatever is kind of like a, you know, a phrase that some people use today, whatever, whatever. Does that annoy you like it annoys me? But anyway... But this is a different kind of whatever. It's whatever you do, which is a pretty sweeping statement, right? It's not just, you know, how long you sit in church that this applies. It's not about having the right lingo and the right behavior when you walk in the walls of the church. It's whatever you do. Whatever you do in word, here's our message, or deed, which is your speech and your actions, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. So Christians have a mission field everywhere. The early church went on the highways and byways and they went out preaching the good news of the gospel. And all of us, I think, are looking for ways that we can have entrees into sharing our faith. And in the U.S., it's becoming more and more difficult because people tend to be closed in many respects to the gospel. And we have to find ways to open doors for communication. And one of the great ways that you can open doors to share the good news with others is your life. Your life is a testimony written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God. Paul said, you are our letter. 
You are the ones that have been transformed by the living God. And that is how you make a difference. Now, all of us, when we hear stuff like this, we're all saying, man, I, I want to do that, but I need some help. Well, we've got it in the Bible. We've got some foundations here. I want to just point out to you, encourage you to mark these as for really for all of our lives. Number one is in verse 10. It says, put on the new self, Colossians 3.10, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. We've got to put on the new self. Now, in one sense, we have already put on the new self. In another sense, we have to do that every single day. And the analogy that we looked at in previous messages is that the, the new self is kind of painted like clothing that we put on. Look at verse 12. It links to verse 10. And so as those who have been chosen of God, you are God's chosen people, holy and beloved, that's what you are, put on, here's the language of clothing, a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. These are attributes that the world doesn't always see. So when they see them in you, it will give you an opportunity. Bear with one another, forgive each other, verse 13. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, here's the analogy again, metaphor of clothing, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. So the first plank or foundation, if you're going to be effective in words and deeds, is to put on the new self. And the metaphor is like putting on the armor of God. It's the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the same as letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you. It's the things of God permeating your life in such a way that they start to come out. They start to flow out like rivers of living water. The second plank is in verse 15. I'm going to give you like four foundations that you can be effective. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, verse 15. We looked at that in a previous message. That word peace in the Hebrew form, the Greek word is irene, the Hebrew form is shalom. And it says, let shalom, if you will, rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called. I told you that the Greek word here has the idea of let it make the call. Let it be the umpire. Let the peace of Christ rule on the 91 freeway. Let it rule in the office meeting on Monday morning when you haven't had enough coffee. Right? Everywhere in your life, let shalom win the day. Let it rule. Let the peace of Christ, it's not your peace, it's his. My peace I give to you, says Jesus. Not as the world gives, do I give it to you. Jesus promises through uh, the pen of the Apostle Paul that we'll have a peace that what? Passes understanding. Don't try to figure it out. Just receive it. It passes understanding. Amen? And you will start to draw people to yourself when you have a peace that is supernatural, the peace of Christ. Look at the third plank or foundation. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. The peace of Christ and the word of Christ with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. So you have put on the new man, the peace of Christ ruling, the word of Christ richly dwelling, going down deep as we uh, prayed about at the beginning. And then I said that there was a theme here about being thankful. Look at verse uh, 15. End of verse 15 says, be thankful. End of verse 16 says, singing with thankfulness in your hearts. Uh, end of verse 17, or it says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. End of 17, giving what? Thanks through him to God the Father. 
These are all things that set you apart. Being a person of peace, being a person whose uh, God's word is richly dwelling in you, being a thankful person. Thankful people are quite unique. Amen? When you get around a thankful person, you want to know more. What makes you tick? What makes you the way that you are in these situations? And you have a chance to share your faith. Now, we took this right into the home. In verse 18, wives were addressed. In verse 19, husbands. In verse 20, children. Fathers or parents were addressed in verse 21. So we went right into the house. And I said, if your faith doesn't work at home, then you better take another look at the whole foundation of your walk. If you can call your wife honey, but treat her like vinegar, then there's something wrong. Now, I'm not talking about that you're going to have moments where you're cranky. We all get cranky, right? We, we all have our moments. Man, I, I heard a witness out there, yeah. <laughs> We can get cranky, but hopefully the overarching theme of your life is not Mr. and Mrs. Crank-y. That should not be how you are known as a believer. Wow. You know, you're, you're prickly when people are around you. They get a little too close and, ow! That's not what you want to be as a witness for Christ. And so as we look at these different categories, we're going to move into verse 22, slaves. And, you know, you, if you've heard this taught before, and there's a parallel text in Ephesians 6, a lot of pastors and commentators, and I think rightly so, have said the modern parallel to this passage is employees. You could say employees in verse 22 and employers in chapter 4, verse 1 will be addressed. But in the ancient world, there was a lot of servitude, a lot of slavery that did go on. And I think it's something like one-third to one-half of Roman citizens were in some form of servitude. Uh, some, in some cases, indentured servitude, and in some cases, it was a means of survival. Some people did it because they had to pay back uh, debt. And some people did it because it was just kind of their lot in life. And so what happened in the ancient world is that outside of our idea of a nuclear family, you have a mom and dad and some kids and a dog and they live in a house. In the ancient world, it wasn't necessarily like that. Sometimes what happened is when you had older sons and daughters, they lived with you and sometimes their spouses moved in with you as well. And all God's people said, I'm glad I don't live back. <laughs> but what they would often do is they would add a room to the home and a household, the head of the house would literally be one who oversaw Everything. You could include the nuclear family, servants and everything. And it could even be uh, the children with their spouses. And sometimes they had farms or they had, you know, a whole thing going on. It was a big group of people that needed this kind of uh, encouragement. And, of course, when you see the word slaves here, you, you wonder, well, does the Bible endorse slavery? And the answer to that question is no, it does not. Paul, and what he writes here, he's going to write to masters as well. And what he's going to say is he's trying to address the reality of the day. In fact, uh, ancient writers, to my knowledge, outside of Seneca, who was a Roman, didn't even address slaves. So for slaves to get something penned to them is quite significant. And masters will be addressed as well. And this tells us something else, that when this letter was written and then read to congregations, 
There would be servants in these congregations and there would be masters in these congregations and they would need to be addressed as well. And so, uh, let me just read a little bit from Douglas Moo. He says, uh, let's go back. He says, the ancient household was often far larger than our typical, typical modern family. He says, it is true that ancient slavery differed in some important ways from the slavery practices, for instance, in 19th century America. But it is also true that ancient and modern slavery in its various forms has in common the basic fact that one human owns and has virtually ultimate control over another. Some forms of employment in the ancient world and in history comes close to the situation. And he mentions indentured servitude. But most employees do, work, do not work in this kind of legally binding framework. It is also true that Paul's advice to slaves here enunciates some basic principles about how Christians should serve someone else that are broadly applicable. So in other words, you could put this into a modern framework of being an employee, but you don't belong to your employer. You may have to obey that person for eight hours a day or whatever, but they don't have the kind of ownership in your life that um, a modern employer would have or an ancient slave owner would have. So there is a difference, but there is an application here because what we do is we have relationships that we get involved with where someone has authority over us. And so how do we treat that person? What does your employer today think of your work ethic, for example? After hiring you, would they say, I want to hire more Christians from Living Truth Christian Fellowship? <laughs> Hopefully, right? But I know if I interviewed a lot of you and I said to you, when you were trying to find someone to work on an you know, aspect of your house and they had the little fishy on their advertisement, and did that always guarantee that you would get top-notch service? I'm sure some of you would say, uh, no. Now, some of us have had great experiences with people in business who are Christians, but others of us have not. And so one writer says, the New Testament does not condemn slavery or condone slavery because its focus is not on the condition of government or society, but on the condition of the heart. In another place in the New Testament, Paul will say, if you can be free, be free. But if you're in a situation where you are a servant, then be the best that you can be. Of course, this assumes that masters are going to do the right thing and those who are in charge of people are going to do the right thing. And I'll say this to you, and I think we all know this, that when people are given an authoritative position over another human being, it really is a test of their integrity and moral character because power can corrupt people, amen? And if you have a responsibility over a group of people, you can start to throw around your power and all of a sudden lose Christ's heart. John MacArthur writes, although slavery is not uniformly condemned in either the Old or New Testaments, the sincere application of New Testament truths has repeatedly led to the elimination of its abusive tendencies. Where Christ's love is lived in the power of his spirit, unjust barriers and relationships are inevitably broken down. As the Roman Empire disintegrated and eventually collapsed, the brutal abused system of slavery collapsed with it, due in great measure to the influence of Christianity. In more recent times, the back of the black slave trade was broken in Europe and America, due largely to the powerful, spirit-led preaching of such men as John Wesley, 
George Whitfield, and the godly statesmanship of such men as William Wilberforce and William Pitt. Christianity says we are to put on love, right? And when you put on love, you can't abuse people. That is not what this is about. Christ said, I did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and give my life as a ransom for many. So when the Christian gospel is lived out in a society, these walls come down. These chains are broken. And there are people today that are experiencing modern slavery. We know we have an epidemic right now of the sex slave trade. Where there are people in other countries, people who are impoverished and don't have a way to make an income and desperate. And they are often sold into the sex slave trade. And it is a terrible blight in our world. By the way, it's happening right here in the United States as well. Where people are being abused and their stories are coming out more and more as ministry is now moving in that direction to help people in those situations. So over a lifespan, if we apply this to being a modern employee, the average worker will spend about 77,000 hours on the job. 77,000 hours. Think about it. If you are a person who works, let's say, 40 to 50 hours a week at your job, you spend a lot of time with those people, right? And that job often becomes one of your main mission fields. And even though you may not have a business card that says you're in professional ministry, whatever that is, we need you to be a Christian wherever you are. If this city is going to experience revival, if you're a nurse or a doctor or you're a construction worker or you're a police officer or whatever you do, you're going to have opportunities to reach people that I can never reach. And it's going to be your witness in the world that truly makes the difference. 50% of Americans will procrastinate at work and do absolutely nothing one full day in every five. That's from the day America told the truth. <laughs> One day in five. Hmm. And so we have a witness. And when we are at work, we have an opportunity to make a difference. Skip down to verse 23. Oh, go, go back to 22 for a second. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Here's the idea. Don't just... Try to look like you're working when the boss comes by. You're playing your little game, right? And the boss comes by and then you try to look like you're working. That is not a glorious witness. Amen. And all the dogs in the house said, woof. Anyway. So there you go. You know, sometimes bosses, they may know a little bit more than you think they know. So you walk by a desk and uh, somebody's trying to look busy. You know, during the NCAA tournament, for those of you who are basketball fans, they have, an, they have a screen that you can download for your computer that makes it look like you're working, but you're actually following the games. Can I get a witness? <laughs> I remember some years ago, I was doing grunt work for a printing company, and the boss of the company was pretty well-to-do. 
And so one day they said, oh, the things are a little slow in the printing plant. So we're going to load wood at the boss's house, right? And it was playoff time for Major League Baseball. And so I'm doing grunt work and unloading wood out of the car at this guy's additional home up in the mountains. And I peeked into the living room and he had the ball game on. And I was like, that, that rascal, this is just wrong. I'm unloading wood while he's, and why is he unloading the wood? Why am I doing that? And my witness for Christ was glorious that day. <laughs> Whatever we do, we're supposed to work hard. Not just when people are watching because the Lord is always watching. The Lord knows when you're playing a game, right? If we ultimately have a master in heaven, we want to do our work as unto him. And so that's where verse 23 says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. NIV says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. The Greek word there is suke, often translated soul as working for the Lord, not for men. In verse 22, the word for heart is cardia. In verse 23, it's suke. And sometimes you have heard that uh, an employee will be the heart and soul of a company. Or somebody might say, man, that person does their job with their heart and soul poured into it. That's what we're talking about here. When you do your work, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord. If you're mowing the, Lord, the lawn, not the Lord, mowing the, the lawn, do it for the Lord, not grumbling. If you're washing a dish, do it as unto the Lord. I'm trying to get this point across in my own household to the younger up-and-comers. Do it as unto the Lord. I remember some years ago, I was at a men's breakfast at I think it started at 6 a.m. many years ago. Uh, an hour, I, I don't understand uh, Bible studies starting at 6 a.m. Some of you understand that, I don't. But anyway, I was washing dishes with a friend of mine and there was this old pan in a church that had been around for 100 years. The pan looked like it needed to become a burnt offering. I mean, it was, it had been used. There was stuff caked on this thing. And my friend, who was a pretty successful guy, it was early in the morning, he kept washing this thing for like 10 minutes. And I'm like, let's move on. I got things to do, people to see, places to go. He goes, this thing is going to be as clean as it's ever been. He was just doing it as unto the Lord. Amen. And when you see someone live their life that way, man, it makes a difference. You say, well, why should I do that? You know, some jobs just are not my cup of tea. I, there's some things I just don't feel like doing. Well, join the club. <laughs> I wish life was just things that I felt like doing. But we don't live our lives on feelings as Christians, right? We're trying to do the right thing by the power of the Spirit. Here's one reason that you should be motivated. You should know, look at verse 24, that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. By the way, slaves had no hope of inheritance in the ancient world. They had nothing. But they're told here, servants are told here, that when you do the right thing, you're going to receive a reward from the Lord. All of us as Christians, we talk about, man, when I go to heaven, the one thing I want to hear is, can I hear it? Well done, good and faithful servant. And you know what we think of? We think of uh, how often I read my Bible, how many people I witnessed to, and, uh, you know, how I did with spiritual things like church service and that kind of thing. But do you know 
that the Bible's application of well done is much wider than that. In fact, it has to do with how you worked and your witness in the world and your integrity. The well done, good and faithful servant is going to be much broader because your whole life is really about ministry. Your whole life is really about being a witness. And the Lord is going to reward you. He's going to give the reward of the inheritance. Some people think that that is spiritual rewards in heaven. Some people think it's the inheritance of the kingdom of God. Notice repetition. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Uh, recently, we went to an uh, ice cream place called Frostbites. Anybody ever been to Frostbites before? It's a pretty unique name. Anyway, we were down in Orange County, and, and the two workers behind the counter they were just having such a great time with their job. They're smiling. They said, did you want to try this flavor? And they had a smile on their face. You want to try it? It was late at night, probably about 1030 at night. You know, sometimes you go into a business and it's around closing time and you don't get the best treatment from the employees. Anybody ever been there before? You walk into a place, they're cleaning and they all turn around all at once and give you this scowl like, what are you doing here? We don't want you here, but the business stuff on the window says we're open for 20 more minutes, so come on in. <sighs> what do you want? What would you like? Uh, uh, some delightful service? Uh, <laughs> a smile, maybe? And doesn't it make a difference when someone who is Maybe serving you at a restaurant serves you with a smile. Man, they were giving us all these different... You want to try this one? Pastor Michael was in his glory. Oh, it, was, it was wonderful. You want to try the, the vanilla one with the strawberry? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. You want to try the, the cookies and cream with the peanut butter? Yeah. And each time they gave me another one, they smiled about it. And it was great. So my wife looked up some <laughs> responses on... Uh, what do they call that? Yelp? And uh, people were saying, hey, just go to this place just for the customer service alone. And I thought, well, isn't that interesting? Here, a couple people were behind the counter serving samples of ice cream. And they did it with joy. And sometimes we, we have maybe a good job and we get paid well and we don't have a, such a great attitude. So... The good news is to be lived out in all our areas of life. We're going to be rewarded for what we did right, but look at verse 25. For he who does wrong will receive, notice, the consequences of the wrong which he has done and that without partiality. You know, there's the opposite effect where if we're messing around and we're kind of blowing our witness at work, one day we're going to answer to our master. Now, we all know as Christians, we're not going to face the great white throne judgment, right? We're going to stand before Christ at the Bema, but it would appear that there's verses like this in the Bible where things that we didn't do so well might get a little bit of a grade, not for salvation purposes, but maybe for, hey, you could have done better here. So would to God that right now we take a look at some of those areas, right? Would to God that we sharpen up some areas so that we get that together. The Lord says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Look at verse 25 again. It says he will receive the consequences. Some scholars say the consequences there are the natural consequences like David experienced, although the Lord did deal with him there. 
But others say it fits better with verse 24, that just as there's going to be a reward for good we've done, so the wrong we've done will be dealt with. And notice it's going to be without partiality. You ever notice that we're really good at human beings at justifying our actions when we do them? Uh, I can, I have a little wiggle room here. Me and the Lord, we're good, you know, we're fine. But you know what? The Lord is going to give an honest assessment of our life. Look at verse 25, end of the verse, without partiality. I don't know about you, I tend to be partial toward myself. I look good in most of my stories that I tell, right? When I caught a fish, it's always a lot bigger. But you know what? The Lord's going to take an honest assessment of our life. And there's a connection here to a delicate situation that was happening with Onesimus, who was a runaway slave. And um, the book of Philemon deals with his situation. And Paul had to tell him, you know what? You need to get right. You can't, you can't be doing this. You can't be handling your life in the wrong way. In fact, just take a peek at chapter 4. Look at verse 8. It says, For I have sent him to you for this very purpose that you may know about our circumstances, 4, 8, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him he sent Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, that they will inform you about the whole situation here. Onesimus was a runaway servant. He, he blew it. And he was in the company that was carrying this letter back to Colossae. And things had to be made right, even though he was a Christian and his uh, master was a Christian. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Now masters are addressed, or you could say bosses or managers. Masters, chapter 4, verse 1, grant your slaves justice and fairness. The idea there is of equality. Knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So let's say that you are a business owner. You own a company. You're in a position of authority. You always have to remember that you too have a master in heaven. And your master is going to assess how you treated people who were under you. And the measure of your treatment of them is really the measure of how Christ treated those and treats those who are under him. What did he do? He washed the disciples' feet. The disciples didn't want to do it. And Jesus took the place of the lowest slave and he said, you call me master and Lord and that's what I am. If I, your master and Lord, washed your feet, you should what? Wash one another's feet. I've given you an example that you should do as I have done. When we serve others, even when it's unexpected, when you're in a position of authority and you maybe deserve to be served or it's the right you know, way of things, the right ethic is that you would be served, but you serve somebody else, man. All of a sudden, if you're a manager or owner, that gives you an opportunity to witness to other people. As we move from, we're moving from deeds to words, look at verse 2. It says, devote yourselves to prayer. This is something we're going to need to do if we're going to be effective. Keeping alert, staying awake, in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. We've got to be devoted to prayer. Quaker Thomas Kelly says this. There's a way of ordering our mental life in more than one level at once. On one level, we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs. 
But deep within, behind the scenes, at a profounder level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship, gentle receptiveness to divine breathings. What Thomas Kelly is saying is that there's a way to order your spiritual life where you could be meeting someone at work, but still on a deeper level be in prayer to God. You could be going, you know, doing a work project, making a presentation, and still on a deeper level saying, Lord, shine through me. There's a way to order your spiritual life in such a way where you can be in touch with heaven as you deal with people on earth, and that's how you're going to be most effective. That's why I think prayer is here. It might seem a little awkward at first, but prayer is here because the man or woman of prayer is bound to shine for Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So you, deep, you, uh, you dip your cup in deep. Uh, as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, prayer is a duty, but it is much more than a duty. It, it should be a delight. It should be the ultimate expression of the Christian life. You're meeting someone at work, and maybe you're saying, Lord... I pray for this person's soul. I pray for their family. I pray you'll give me an opportunity to reach them for Christ. I pray you'll use my smile, use my voice, use my attitude. Let me be about your kingdom business here at work. I'm not talking about reading your Bible during company hours. You know, I'm not talking about that kind of thing. But I'm just saying you being a Bible to others. Sometimes Christians get in trouble because they say, I'm being persecuted at work. I was reading my Bible on company time. I'm being persecuted. No, that's not persecution. You owe your employer the hours that he pays you for. Read your Bible at lunch, right? Find ways to win people around you. Praying at the same time, says Paul, for us as well, that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison. Paul said, please pray for me as well. I may be in chains, but the word of God cannot be chained. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. In order that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Sometimes I tell people, and I try to practice this myself, Lord, teach me what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and when to be quiet. Amen? Lord, take this instrument, this tongue that the book of James says, man, it can do great blessing, but it can do great harm. Wall it behind my teeth, O Lord, if I'm going to say something dumb. Put a guard over my mouth. Teach me what to say, how to say it, when to say it, and when to be quiet. Oh Lord, I need to pray that more. Because that is the stuff that starts to make a difference in your witness to the world. And then finally, look at verses 5 and 6. It says, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of opportunities, or the most of the opportunity. Uh, look back at Ephesians 5 with me for a second. Just the couple books back. Ephesians 5, look at verse 15. Ephesians 5, 15 says... Ephesians 5.15. It says, Therefore be careful how you walk, 5.15, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then don't be foolish, 5.17 of Ephesians, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you know what God's will for your life is? 
His will for your life is that as you are on this planet, whatever you do in word or deed, you do all in the name of Jesus Christ. You wake up in the morning and you say something like this, Lord Jesus, this day is yours. You gave it to me, I give it back to you. How do you want to use me today? Is there someone who needs the gospel that I'm going to cross paths with today, Lord? If so, I want to be your man. I want to share the good news of the gospel. Show me the open doors that you have for me today. Start your day in prayer. Start your day putting on the full armor of God or something simple. I often pray just this. Lord, by faith, I put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe me with the attributes that you want me to have today for this day. Just a very simple prayer. Conduct yourselves, back to Colossians and we'll finish it. Conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders. You got to be wise, making the most of every opportunity. Be wise. Many people today see Christianity as a racket because sometimes they turn on certain television stations, let's be candid, and they watch things and they sometimes get the idea that that's Christianity. Now you can turn on TV and see some good things. But sometimes you turn on so-called Christian television and you see some things that can be offensive. And sometimes you walk into some places and you can be offended as well when they take five different offerings on a Sunday morning, right? It's not about money, but now we're going to take the third offering of the morning service and now it's for the, you know, this fund and this fund. And, and some people get the idea that this is not about me growing in my faith. This is about them growing in their pocketbook. You know, unbelievers in many ways are generally suspicious of you. Did you know that? They're wondering if this whole thing is authentic. They're wondering if it's real for you. They're wondering how real you are. Most of them, their common excuse is, I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites in the church, right? Then they meet you outside the church. Here's an opportunity. You want to make the most of it, right? You don't want to confirm their suspicions. And so Jesus says, be shrewd as serpents, but innocent as doves. Verse 6, let your speech, the Greek word here is logos, always be with grace. Let your speech, Colossians 4, 6, always be with grace. You always want to speak with grace. Now, what is grace? Well, the Greek word is charis. It's a beautiful word. And the word has the idea of graciousness. It has, you know, behind it the idea of divine influence. It's what affords pleasure, joy, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. Sometimes when we say someone is graceful or gracious, that says a lot, right? Man, that person is a gracious person. Sometimes you expect someone to be mad at you and they respond in grace and you're like, wow. I thought the hammer was coming down, man. And I got grace instead. Grace is what God gives to us undeserving sinners. And so when we're in, engaged in regular conversation with people, we want our, our language to be what? Seasoned with grace. We want it to be full of the grace of God because that's what we've experienced. To speak with grace, says MacArthur, means to say what is spiritual, wholesome, fitting, kind, sensitive, purposeful, complimentary, gentle, 
truthful, loving, and thoughtful. In Ephesians 4.29, he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. Ephesians 4.29. Now this, the one exception is if you're with your buddies. If you're with your buddies, I would say tear down each other as much as you can. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, look, as Christians, we're not saying you can't have fun with your brothers at their expense. I think that's a, <laughs> I think that's a reasonable approach. If, as long as they're not tearing you down, you get them. Look, I don't think that this means you can't have fun. But think about what the opposite of grace is. When you don't speak to people with grace, grace edifies. What does the opposite do? Pride tears people down. Do you know that with your language, there's not a whole lot of neutrality? Your language is either going to build up others or tear them down. There's not a little, lot of middle ground. So you want to say, Lord, as I go out today, I want to sanctify my heart, my mouth, everything that I, ha I have and give it to you. I want to give a reason for the hope that I have within me. One writer says, let your speech always be with grace. Make sure your brain is in gear before you engage your mouth. Once the words are spoken, it's done. There's no erase button, no rewind button. You can't say to the judge, uh, tell the jury to disregard that last comment, please. Your speech is so powerful. According to scripture, the person, husband, wife, parent, child, employer, employee, friend, who blurts out whatever he or she is thinking or feeling without considering the consequences is in a bad way indeed. You know, you have people who say, I just say whatever's on my mind. <laughs> well, you may want to rethink that. Sometimes it's this way. Someone has a mouth almost like a machine gun. It's like this. Everybody in the house is bleeding on the floor, right? The dog is hurt, wounded. And then they say something like this. Oh, you know how I am. I, I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean it. But everybody's still got bullets in them. Right? Oh, I was just playing around. We're good, right? Y'all good? Yeah, I think so. You got extra strength band-aids around here anywhere? Right? And sometimes people who love you and who are around you they won't tell you. They won't always tell you. Man, you've hurt me. You know, sometimes there are people who carry wounds and hurts through verbal stuff that was spoken for a long, long time. Some of you may have them right now. You know, we can think back to words that were spoken to us that were just so deflating and defeating. And... We're told, no, don't do that. Have your life be and your mouth be that which is full of grace. And then we're going to end with the verse 6, but there's another metaphor here. And it says, seasoned as it were with salt. How many of you enjoy salt? Now, I know some people who put salt on their salt. <laughs> that is not good for your health, by the way. Oh, this just needs a little bit more. You just got french fries with salt on them. Don't put more salt. 
Well, in the ancient world, in the rabbinic literature, the literature from the rabbis, they associated salt with wisdom. So this week, you're going to have a salt shaker. All right? Don't use the pepper. Use the salt, okay? And it's, it's going to be something like this. You're going to go around this week, and it's going to be like this. And you're going to be able to sprinkle salt in different areas. You're going to be able to bring some seasoning to some people's life. Maybe some depth. The idea of salt is salt does season things, right? Makes bland things taste better. And so that may be what God wants you to do this week. Make some bland things taste a little better. You say, how do I do that, Pastor Michael? This week when you go into work, smile more. What? Yeah. Don't be an old salty dog. <laughs> Sorry. Be salty in the best sense of the word. A little smile. A little sprinkle a little salt on it. How you doing today? You may want to just go in and... Some places, some people will just burn in your presence. Sorry, that was the witch from The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Salt seasons. It makes bland things taste better. You may be at an office environment that's pretty bland. People walk around like this. Oh, yo, yo. <laughs> Man, it's like Pillar saying, it's a bummer to work here. Maybe you need to go, right? Or the other option is to just join them. <laughs> but you serve the Lord. You see, if you show up to work, and I know this is an old image, but let's say you punch a time card. If you punch it for the Lord, will that make a difference? You say, Lord, I'm going to work as unto you. I'm not going to worry about the attitude I'm getting from up above. The flavor of wit. Our conversation shouldn't sting with sarcasm, but rather be seasoned with truth and grace. Salt also suggests the preservative of faithfulness. It's a preserving influence. In the ancient world, there's no refrigeration, so sprinkling some salt on things kept them from decaying. There's some people around you. They're, I'm just going to be real. Some people around you want to die. They don't want to live anymore. This is how real this is, you guys. Some people around you have been considering suicide. They don't want to live anymore. And if you come in with your salt shaker, a little grace seasoned with salt, it may make a difference in their world. Now, we can't guarantee what decisions people make, but we want to be good at being what God's called us to be. As grace flows through the heart, it flows outward in kindness. The conversation is never insipid. It's never flat, stale, or tasteless, or boring. In fact, it's seasoned with salt. It's savory, scintillating. Not the dull, sanctimonious, insincere vocabulary that seems to be demanded in some church circles. You walk in, shh, turn thou us to the Bibleist of the, what? 
That's language from 1611 in the King James, right? We can be who we are, seasoned with salt. Like apples in, of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Father, as we uh, think about these things, man, they're so practical, and we come before you in humility, Lord, because we have, I have failed so many times to be that person who in word and deed has done everything unto the Lord Jesus Christ, seasoned with salt, gracious. And Lord, we, we'd have to confess sometimes we've come across as stale and maybe even without the life of God. But in our culture, in this city of Corona, Lord, this city needs a revival. And this nation needs a revival. And if the people on the soccer fields this morning and the baseball fields and working in the companies this morning and wherever they may be are going to see the church shine in our generation to truly be a city set upon a hill, to be salt and light on the earth. It's going to be your people dominated by your Holy Spirit. So Lord, we've talked about foundations today. We've talked about putting on the new self. We've talked about the peace of Christ ruling, the word of Christ richly dwelling. We've talked about being thankful. We've talked about our actions unto you. We work for you, not for man. And Lord, that our mouths would be seasoned with grace. This is a lot. But we don't do it by might. We don't do it by our power. We do it by your Holy Spirit. Give us, Lord, the strength that we need. This week, just one day at a time. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. We can't. We can't control tomorrow. We can't change yesterday. It's over. But today is what we do have. And so let us make the most of today. I know there's a lot of hurts and wounds in this room. And I know that there's some folks that are just trying to find their own bearings and anchor. And I, and I pray, Lord, that you'd minister to every need. Wash over your people. Strengthen them. Know, let them know that you're for them, not against them. And I, I pray that you would just bless. And with your head and heart bowed, if you're not a Christian this morning and, and maybe you've been on the edge, maybe you've been wondering, man, can I even live another day? Oh, the life of God. Jesus said, I, I've come to give you life and that more abundantly. He wants to bless you. But there's a thief who's come to kill and steal and destroy. And maybe you've been in his crosshairs and you want to get out. Well, Jesus took the bullet for you. He, he went to the cross for you, but you must confess him as Lord and Savior. You must decide that he's going to be your Lord, your King, and you're going to follow him. And in these moments, I would just say to you, don't let another moment go by where you have not settled this. So as you bow your heart, it's something like this. I want to encourage you, pray it out loud if it's you, and just settle it. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on that cross for me. Thank you that you defeated death and rose from the dead. I receive you as my Lord and my Savior. I want to walk with you, Lord. I repent of my sin. I want to change. I want to be more like you. I want to be more a man of woman and woman who, or woman who is filled with love and integrity and peace and strength and dignity and hope. Lord, do your work in those hearts that 
just desperately need you. Cause people to be born again to a living hope. Let prodigals come home today, Lord. And just do your healing work in this body, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.